Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a Q&A from our sneak preview of The Worst Person in the World with director Joachim Trier and actors Anders Danielson-Lee and Renato Reinsmith. Moderated by FLC's Director of Programming, Dennis Lim. As proven in such exacting stories of lives on the edge as Reprise and Oslo August 31st, Norwegian director Joachim Trier is singularly adept at giving an invigorating modern twist to classically constructed character portraits. Trier catapults the viewer into the world of his most spellbinding protagonist yet. Julie, played by Con Best Actress winner Renata Reinsve, who's the magnetic center of nearly every scene. After dropping out of pre-med, Julie must find new professional and romantic avenues as she navigates her late 20s and juggling emotionally heavy relationships with two very different men, including the Trier regular, Anders Danielson-Lee, and the engaging newcomer, Herbert Nordrum. Fluidly told in 12 discrete chapters, Trier's film elegantly depicts the precarity of identity and the mutability of happiness in our runaway contemporary world. Now nominated for Best International Feature Film and Best Original Screenplay at the Academy Awards, the NYFF 59 selection is playing daily in our theaters. This Valentine's Day, watch The Worst Person in the World with The Best Person in the World. Buy one ticket and get one 50% off. The discount will automatically be applied in the cart on filmlink.org worst. Now, let's go to the talk. Thank you. Thanks all for staying, and, and thank you all for making the trip. This is a celebration of you know Joachim's films of the Oslo trilogy, but it's it's I, I think it's really meaningful to have both of you here as well, Renata and Anders. Um, thank you for having us. Uh, so I think I'm just going to start with a question about the trilogy, since uh, we are celebrating it. Um, I know that the idea you didn't set out to make a third film in a trilogy. Uh, I just am wondering at what point you thought of it as possibly being related to the other two films? Um, we, we never had a plan about it being, as you're absolutely right. It, was, it wasn't something when Eskil Fucht, my co-writer, that I've written all the five features I've, I've directed in collaboration with, uh, we didn't have a plan. What I, what I told Eskil was I wanted to get back to the spirit of Reprise, the first film we did together. Now, 15 years later, just trying to do something where... It was more fragmented and playful and messy and taking risks about formal bits, maybe that were quite different than other bits of the film. And, you know, so, so that was a part of and also maybe um, being more sh shameless about talking about the types of characters and people that I felt I knew personally. <laughs> Uh, so all of that was in play, but then, you know, I, I wrote it for, for these two, and when Anders read it, he said, listen, this is, I, I feel that there is a thematic, and we can talk more about that, and you might want to add something on this, but that there was some sort of thematic thread be between Reprise, Oslo, and this one. Yeah, I felt that this film had... Um the, the narrative structure and the narrative spirit mm -hmm. uh, that Reprise had, and, but it was, was also a psychological portrait. Mm -hmm. So um, it felt like, like a mix between the two. And, uh, and of course, you have Oslo as the, uh, the, the common scene, you know, mm -hmm. the common stage for these uh, characters and these characters and, and these stories and but there are also themes that I, I find in common the 
these themes of ambition and, and the expectations that you have for your life and how that collides with, with reality sometimes, yeah. what your life ends up being. Mm -hmm. Did you think of this character as uh, a version of Philip? in reprise. I mean, there's certain moments in this film, like I'm struck at towards the end where he talks about growing up in, a, in an age where, you know, culture circulates through objects, which is very much something that's felt in, in, in reprise too, you know, as a kind of young man's film. And this is sort of like that young man 15 years later in some ways. Yeah, that's a good question. For, for those who haven't seen uh, Reprise, uh, Philip is the, the, um, one of the protagonists in that film, which is about two friends, uh, as, aspiring writers. Um, well, to me, Philip is a, is a much more mysterious mm -hmm. uh, uh, soul, and you don't really have ac access to... Uh, to his mind and there's something wrong with him it turns out I mean he has some kind of mental illness whereas Axel um, Julie's uh, boyfriend is um, a much lighter character mm -hmm. he's um, and probably more mentally sane uh, <laughs> but he for me this character is not a, it's not a psychological portrait. It's more a representation of a theme that is uh, recurring in these films. The theme of, as you say, the theme of, uh, uh, you know, melancholy, absence, mm -hmm. the passing of time yeah. and all that. So, so I feel that he's um, trying to tell us that eventually we only have our memories left and, and uh, this biographical catalog of experiences is, is what we end up having left in our lives. And that's what also constitute our identities. Yeah. I think that's uh, what that character means. Yeah. Joachim, you said you wrote the film uh, for these two. Um, obviously, we know Anders from your other films, but Renata, you actually did have a small role in Oslo. So that was, was yeah. that when the two of you met? Yeah. It was, uh, I did a weird audition that I, I uh, didn't know how to send it. So I put it on YouTube and I sent the link and I never ever took it off because I don't know how. So it's still there. <laughs> don't look it up. Uh, it's, uh, I, was, I just came home from my cabin and did some, I didn't think I was gonna get it anyway. And then uh, I was in audition, do you remember? And you said like, oh, your clothes looks like you're from the 90s. Do you remember? Did I say that? <laughs> yeah. No, I don't remember. I had a hat. Nice guy. Yeah, yeah I'm a very, very nice guy <laughs> yeah. in auditions. I, I have always thought that that audition was a lot of fun and we had a lot for of fun. For you. For yeah. me. Yes, for me. always fun for the bully. <laughs> no, yeah, and then... Uh, I was on set, we, <laughs> yeah, but I had to be on set for nine days because of the lighting, it was a sunrise. You so keep saying lighting, it's the light. 
Because can I just <laughs> make this the same? We've we've been on the road with this film. Can I just like for once? I I I love doing I'm, this film. But you keep saying to me like now you say you, I've said you, that three hundred times. I know you keep like here's the distinction. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not first-hand English speaker. No, when she, there's a difference between a director that cares about lighting and that cares about light, right? I care about the morning sun being appropriately yeah, set yeah. in the scene. The lighting is the director goes, no, you got to do it again because that <laughs> lamp was in the wrong place. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So anyway, let's, we cleared that out. Yeah. Please excuse us. It's, it's, it's all in the family. Yeah. Anyway, yes, I, I did want to capture the morning light in Oslo and you were on set nine days. So please continue. <laughs> I lost it. You have to correct me if I'm wrong, but also, like I'm gonna continue. I won't, I won't like uh, Oslo is really small, so like we kind of we met here and there because we did like I didn't do much movies, but you did, and we met. I did a little, and we met in offices like here, and we always ended up having this like conversations, <laughs> existential conversations about life and love and everything. I don't know. It was. Uh, I was like, we were in tune on some themes, I guess. But um, yeah, my um, answer is becoming too long. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Um, but you, I, I um, read an interview where you said you had actually decided to step away from acting before yeah. you got the script. Yeah, the day before actually. Or not, the <laughs> not the script because it wasn't ready when he called me. But I had this big moment where I let go because I felt it was very frustrating doing the productions I I was in, like a few movies and films, no, um, and series because uh, I don't know. It wasn't like it, it's not a lot of productions in Norway where you, no one in in Norway does what Joachim does, and it's uh, very rare that you have characters like this or like that are multi-dimensional yeah. and in theater you never get to go anywhere because you work night and day and holiday so I wanted to like live so that I yeah I decided to quit and then the day after he called me yes and I'm used to that because I'm used to working <laughs> with this guy who's a doctor and says every yeah. time we do a film like maybe this is the last one and you know he's like the Norwegian Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> like Daniel Day-Lewis goes off to Italy and makes leather shoes, I hear. This guy is a doctor. He removes appendixes, saves lives. You know, he has more important stuff to do. So I'm used to actors living life and going in and out of the profession. And I find it kind of uh, intriguing and triggering, maybe even, that you guys actually <laughs> live. Can, can I say something about that? Because it's, it's kind of an inverse um, compliment to you. Because after you have uh, done a film uh, with Joachim Trier as an actor, you kind of feel that, okay, this is, uh, it can't be better than this. Uh, so I sometimes feel when we have worked together, I, I feel like I have drained myself. So this is what I have to give. And... Um, Th th this is yes. enough. <laughs> I know what you mean. But can you elaborate on that? <laughs> like, what, what is it? The process? Is it the result? We're just so it? tired now. <laughs> Don't say anything more, or they'll define it as a cult, and that's illegal. <laughs> no, thank you, thank you. No, I don't know. I, um, I think there's. Um, uh, I think I would say that projects like this and films like this are. Uh, not common. I mean, you don't always get to reflect on 
your own life almost in, in films. And I have grown up in your films in a way. Uh, and um, and working with you... We've grown up together. I've yeah, yeah, we have. Too. So, and, and it almost feels like home. It feels like a laboratory that I can go back to and uh, um, continue developing myself as, a, as, as an actor, but also as a person. Because uh, I get to explore um, new parts of myself and, and um, uh, places in my psyche that I uh, didn't know about. And sometimes I get the feeling after having done that, um, it feels like uh, now I have to step back and do something else. I, I wanted to, I don't want to jump on a new project right away with somebody else. And, uh, and that's a compliment. No, no, I'm mm. taking it. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about what the, what, what's the atmosphere like on the set of these films. I think, I think what's striking about Joachim's films is there, there's the kind of fluidity, but there's also a kind of density. They're films that are really full of ideas. You know, they're full of life. And I'm, I'm just wondering, especially the Oslo films, um, what's it like to be making these films uh, is the does the mood on the set match the mood of the film the energy of the film yes <laughs> <laughs> no but i i was in uh yeah just that one with one line in the oslo but it was uh that was also my first film ever, and I was still in theater school, and I thought it was just a group of friends making a movie in a very serious way, but having fun, being very ambitious, but really going deep into uh, the matter and, and what we were trying to do. Uh, and uh, it never, ever felt like that in any other productions. And going on to this set, too, was... You put on music and we, you kind of gave the, the vibe of, of what we needed that day. You, you um, like, this is also going to be a long answer. I can't, I can't, uh, okay. <laughs> it's, um, no, Joachim creates this culture on set where it is like a big group of friends making a movie. You get so close, you, everyone eventually you build trust between us and you build trust between um, everyone in your crew. And so, and everyone is so leaned into what we're doing, like really being serious about that this story matters and that this, what we're talking about is very important. And we try to be like really honest with, you know, this is what it feels like to be in love. And this is what my shame is. And this is what my sorrow is. So um, we we dare to use ourselves, but then we also have so much fun and dance and laugh and um, yeah, like you say, we'll never be the same after this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted you to Joachim to maybe talk about um, Eskil, who's not here with us. Obviously, an important collaborator for you, and yeah. also he also with you curated the, the rest of the series. So can you, you've, you also go way back with him. You've known each other since you were young, right? Can you talk about that, that uh, meeting, that connection? 
Yeah, and I, I, uh, I'm so fortunate to have a friend and a collaborator like Eskil Vogt. He's uh, one of my oldest and, and best friends, and we're both film nerds. And we met at a Norwegian live broadcast game show where we were cable bashers behind the cameras. Like, live television is risky, so they needed someone to make sure the cameras wouldn't get stuck in the cords and stuff. And there was kind of a uh, pecking order. Like, we wouldn't have lunch with the, the, the photographers, you know. So we sat by ourselves, and it turned out he loved Hal Hartley and Fellini, and so did I. And, and we became friends. And then I went to film school in London, and he went to Paris. And we're both educated as directors in fiction departments at La Femisse National Film School. But we ended up... I was fortunate enough to have him help me write. I, I am... Uh, I'm not a great writer. I, I'm dyslexic. I mean, I can read, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm restless. I, I, my spelling is awful. I have low self-esteem in my writing. But I think I know something about how to structure scenes and how to come up with ideas. So directing and writing is, is kind of a, one part of the same. It's, it's the same process almost. And Eskil is someone that can, can understand that process. And, and how I need to have that happen in a special way. And, and it starts out with two things every time. We sit in a room for a long time and feel um, that we don't know what we're going to do and feel very lost. And then we have a huge bookshelves of old books about movies and old copies of Sight and Sound and Cahiers du Cinema. And we nerd out and we play stupid games where we like blindfold ourselves and point at something. And this is going to be our next film. And... Suddenly, it's like something very strange. <laughs> Natick of the North, you know? It's a masterpiece, but I can't, I, what, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So uh, there's all these wonderful films, and we talk about them, and then, and then we procrastinate by talking about our life, and then that becomes the movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we've discovered that's usually what happens. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. So I've actually, I have wanted you to do a series like this for a long time because I know, I know your, your, your knowledge, your taste of cinema is, I think, really interesting because it's really broad. Um, and I also know how, I've known you since Reprise. Um, we, yeah, and we've and been in this room since Reprise together. Pretty much. <laughs> no, which which yeah. is very moving to me. Yeah. I, 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 I said it to the, my friends here as we walked in that I've, I've actually... Uh, it was such a big deal. I think it was in New Directors, New was, Films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we, this was in my writer days and we, I was supposed to write. That's I, true. I it was New York Times. And yeah. um, we went to MoMA and we spent the whole day talking about movies. So, the, you know, I, I knew this sort of encyclopedic mind, this referential mind, like constantly citing films. And every time I would see you, there, was, there would be these kinds of conversations. So the idea of for you and Esco putting together the series is very logical and I think the result is beautiful and uh, do you want to say a little bit about how you came up with these nine films that to show with the, the nine films that you, you don't screen. have to talk about all of them no no you know, yeah um, 
it, it was really intuitive, actually. Mm. And, and, uh, but I think we made some good choices. I think that Eskel and I sat down and spent... Uh, I, I came up with something, he came up with something. And we, we, we tried to go back to some lists that we had with each of these three Oslo films. And to, to honestly talk about like w what films really inspired us uh, creatively, aesthetically. Uh, and I, I, you know, um, The Breakfast Club was, <laughs> I, I, I can't say one-to-one -one what it inspired, but I know Eskel and I felt that that was our first encounter with drama. Mm -hmm. uh, Gateway Drug to Bergman, I think we put in the program. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, that's on one hand. And th but then also there's something uh, like Larissa Serpitko's Wings, which is very, very structurally inspiring for Oslo, August 31st. Mm -hmm because it's about a, a day in someone's life where you get a perspective of, of, of a grand existential journey it, just in that one day in that person's life, you know. And I recommend anyone to see that if they, if they haven't already decided to or haven't seen it. Um, the Green Ray is screening after this, you know. Uh, I think uh, La Rayon Vert is a masterpiece by Eric Romer. It's, I'll say more about that for those who've, who are coming to see that later. But, you know, the, all of these films are um, films that have meant something to Eskel and myself. And we decided we both needed to, to agree on them. So mm -hmm. that's the premise, really. Is this how you work with the actors, too? Do you talk about other films as, as reference points or just, you know, things to bring into the conversation? I wonder if, if that was part of your process, um, Renato and Anders. Yeah, we we talked about Diane Keaton and um, oh. jet lag. No, it's uh, Catherine Hepburn. The what's the film called with Diane Keaton? I said jet lag just because I am jet lag. Yes, Annie Hall. Yeah. yeah. Uh, talk about screwball comedies a bit and stuff like yeah. that. But I think if we talk primarily more about life, and I try to trigger them to take charge of the character more than to be kind of film buffs with me. But it's, yeah. uh, we have watched yeah. some movies and, you know. Yeah. yeah. And for you, were there important films? Or I, any other film? I can't remember that we have talked about specific performances or... Um, um, I mean, when we are working with an actual project, we don't try to put references into... Uh, the, the character work or in, into the scenes uh, that's more uh, you know we can have those conversations uh, before and after um, I remember when we made uh, Oslo August 31st uh, it was a big question whether you wanted me to watch Louis Mal's film or not mm -hmm. and I remember you telling me that okay you can you can do you can decide for yourself um, and I ended up watching it, and it um, it struck me that we were doing something completely different. So it felt kind of good to have had that as a reference, but it was not. Um, I, I was not going to use that for my performance. But but since you're asking a specific question about craft, which this is, and and the work process, I think we 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 should share something about that. And I, I think we don't. Uh, look for a way to emulate or look at something from the outside. It all has to be something that is an event in front of the camera that we don't really know what is until it happens. And we will prepare thematically and intellectually and talk a lot and make sure we've 
we've stretched and bent all of it and redrafted the, the, sc the screenplay even with Eskil. After I, I filmed the rehearsals we do and show it to Eskil and we, we, read, we drop dialogue, we come up, you guys come up with some better wording sometimes and we, we, we've been there but we haven't done it yet. That's the distinction. So we mm -hmm. explore it but we haven't done it. And on the day, we, we got to try to create an emotional discovery or an event. On the best of days, that's what happens. And... Uh, this, in this film that you just saw, for example, like the, some of the dialogue scenes that happen at, at the hospital towards the end that I think is some wonderful work that you both do, it, 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 a lot of it is scripted, but the pacing and the structure, for example, when, when there's a long, long close-up of Renata, when, when um, you've just told him that you're pregnant and you're trying to give her compliments, and there's like this moment when we just hold a close-up of you, and you're thinking about something, and you start laughing, and you, you Anders, as an actor almost, ask something that I didn't write. You say, what, what are you thinking about? And then you say, I, I can't take your compliment, and you start crying. That's not scripted. That's something that is completely relevant in the scene, but it's something that occurred in the middle of a take because something happened. I still don't know what you thought about. And I don't need to know, and the audience don't need to know, but I know as an inter interpreter of the scene that it's relevant, and I can imagine and fill myself into that void that you create. And the same when you're on the bench doing your monologue, Anders, about the um, physical objects. I know you very well. I know some of the things that triggered your reactions there but I can't write, oh, and then he laughs, and then he cries, and the, you know, all that stuff's got to happen. And, and some of those things are also what we call jazz takes, you know, like special takes that where you, I, we free it up a bit more. And so, again, the whole idea of, of arriving with a lot of rational ideas but letting them go, that dynamic's in, interesting, I think. I'm just going to ask one more, and then I'll, we'll take a few from the audience. So just... I'll ask about Worst Person, which, you know, a film that premiered, I guess, o over half a year ago now in Cannes, where Renata won the Best Actress Prize. And, and the film has... Um, <laughs> the, the film has circulated um, very widely, and I know that you've all traveled with the film. Anders, maybe not so much, given your other career. Um, but you've, you also won um, the Best Supporting Actor Prize from the National Society of Film Critics uh, a few weeks ago for this film. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, um, like, just how you've, overall, like, just the, the reception and ha how it has, whether you've noticed any differences from place to place, you know, because um, you've, you've, you've shown it, it's opened in Norway, it's opened in many parts of Europe, and it's, you've shown it to American audiences now whether anything has been striking to you about the range of responses to this film? I think there, there is some things that are uh, seen as more progressive some places, like in, in Italy and Spain, they will ask about, um, you know, the taboo of not wanting kids and uh, that's important to them and to have those conversations and, but it, not so much in Norway. So I guess it's like the, the, I think the movie is so rich and it stretches out on so many themes. So I guess it's um, it's very interesting to see what kind of comes up different places. Yeah, that's something. It, it's yet to be seen. I mean, 
in, in several countries. But so far, I this out of all the films that we've made, I think this is the one that where the feedback is almost the most unanimous. It's about identification and the theme of feeling that you have choices and don't know what to choose in life or the existential questions of time. And I mean, it, it's quite specific what people keep talking to, to us at least about. Maybe someone goes and talks about other stuff with someone else. But I, I, more than anything I, I've made, I, I, it's, it feels like, yeah, in France and Sweden and now some people in America and several places, you know, that there's, as an example of something opposite, and we'll talk more about this one, but um, Oslo August 31st was quite, Divided, like in France, no one, it's, it's about, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's about a recovering addict who's trying to look at his life through the perspective of being clean and asking himself questions about what is my life. In France, no one talked about addiction, only about the existential questions. In America, a lot of people asked me about addiction and the diagnosis of depression and medication and a lot of stuff. And also the existential stuff, but it was interesting. To, and I don't think either was wrong. Both are themes clearly at play in this film. But in the, with this one, I, you know, it's yet to be seen in America, but I have screened it at New York Film Festival, you know, and I, I feel that, I don't know. Yeah, it seems like it, it has like a, a cohesive feedback, if that's a word you can use. That's your take too, Anders? Uh, yeah, it, it seems to me, uh, I mean, you guys have traveled more with this film than, than I have, but it seems that for some people, um, uh, it has some kind of therapeutic quality to watch it. Um, maybe because it, it shows that, um, some of the the self contempt and some of the the hard choices that you face uh, are not your fault. I mean, it's just life who who puts you in these situations, and you just have to deal with it. And that's uh, I think there's a point of identification there, n not just for women your age, but uh, for everybody. I mean, there are a lot of um, uh, something that has surprised me is that the film is quite well understood and received by by uh, older people, and some of them uh, look back on on their lives. Uh, and uh, because I I remember thinking that that the film might have. Um, um, that the film would resonate in a very emotional way in some age groups. And then uh, um, people who have gotten older may, might look back at it and, and say that, okay, you're just gonna grow older and everything will be fine. But it's not like that at all. That's bad news then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, or is it good news, I mean? My good friend Torgny, who you both know, said to me when the film premiered, oh, so this is your midlife crisis film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm in my 40s. I'm dealing, but, but I think there's something, yeah, well, we'll get into that. It, it's, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I, I hope it speaks to people regardless of age. Great. All right. Um, we have a full house, so we're going to try to take a few questions. Uh, yes? Let okay. me just quickly before, yeah, just yeah. thank you all for coming. Seriously. Uh, we were very moved yeah. to see so many people. Thank you so much.
people sitting along the aisle and everything. Thank you so much. This is great. So please, yes, question. This question is about the chapter structure of the film. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. I, it's, it's always a paradox, and you did not say that, but some people say, oh, you, you make very literal, literal films. <laughs> and I, I'm always like ambivalent about it. I like your question better because we are, we are borrowing from literature, but we don't want to make literature with, with the films. I admire books too much, uh, and it's something else. But, but I've, um, I think Eskel and I are both great admirers of the, um, the structuring and playfulness of the dramaturgical way of writing a novel. Like the, the, the vast landscapes that have been kind of conquered with books, are, and particularly the, the, the form of the novel, is so inspiring. And I, I think um, to allow ourselves to say that a film doesn't have to be homogenized or doesn't have to have a structure where you abide certain rules that we all, all know will work, and, but try to push it a bit and try, that, that's inspiring right now. I know a lot of people who are writing for TV and, and television could be anything. It could be marvelously artistic and it can be terribly conventional, just like movies. But there is a tendency at the moment to have kind of the first three minutes of something has got to catch you and then, you know, you got to have a cliffhanger and there's all this stuff going on in dramaturgy. So what we were trying with this film was to, to make a bigger big piece of someone's life. And by having the chapter structure, it allowed us to have ellipses and emit things and move forward. So you actually watch Julie's journey stretching from her mid-20s to her early 30s. And I hope that I made a contract with you watching it that we're going to jump ahead sometimes and leave stuff out and let you kind of fill in the blanks, which I think is fun when I watch a movie. Um, so that's one part of it. The other, the other part of it is I think it, it, in any formal trope that you use, like this literary, full, novelistic structure, um, has to resonate with the character. It's, it's, after all, I'm a drama, character-driven storyteller. So isn't it natural that Julie, as a character, would imagine her life kind of novelistically, as if it was a grand adventure, like a coming-of-age book or something, you know? I, th I thought that was kind of charming. And, and throughout the film, that could also maybe subtly add a pressure to her expectations. Or it could seem deterministic, that life just happens. And that plays into the theme of time and acceptance, perhaps, to, that where, where Andrew's character plays a really important role. So I don't know. Those were some of our thoughts about that. Related to that, what about the device of the narrator? Yeah, it's a third-person narrator. Um, to be honest with you, we decide... Oh, Eskel and I have used narration before. It, it mustn't be a cheap trick to, to tell something important. <laughs> and we use this quite differently. Like, at certain points, we use it to summarize something. Um, at other points, like in the breakup scene, and I, I hope this works with subtitles as well, it's almost Julie's thoughts. It's almost this feeling of being outside yourself, being in a dramatic moment in your life, and you're kind of hearing your mouth say something, and then you're thinking about it, and it's all a bit eerie, and you know, so it's, it's um, preceding some of the things that, that, that she's saying in the scene, and I thought that was an interesting device to create. Uh, actually, so, a film that does that is um, Michael Mann's Muhammad Ali movie. Has anyone seen this? Yeah, Ali, which I think got a hard time because it came out 
uh, when we were giants it came out like three years later and everyone loved the documentary but it's actually an interesting good film and it's about someone trying to find his voice literally <laughs> to accept that instinct of a thought and say it out loud and there are some moments in there in the early parts of that film where where there's like a voiceover that says stuff and he, you feel he doesn't dare say it and then he says it and it's a it's a very very specific way of using voiceover and i was inspired by that so so anyway that's that's one of the reasons <laughs> okay um let's try to take something from the back yeah maybe back row yep not sure i've fully heard you but the question is for anderson about being being a doctor and playing a terminally ill character? Okay. Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. I think uh, I had a much more intuitive approach uh, to this character than to the other two uh, characters in the, the previous films where I did much research and I had a thought that the more research I do, the the, the more convincing uh, will the character be. Uh, and that's partly true. I think you can build confidence through research, but at a certain point, you have to just let it live and just... Uh, uh, there are other things that are more important. Uh, I have met many patients in situations like this so I feel like I have seen that I know what that is and uh, I know that there can be uh, variations I mean not uh, it's not the same every time so that gives me freedom as an actor to to um, uh, do my own version of that and then of course you have the script so you have to to uh, um, uh, adapt to that as well. But in fact, I didn't do so much research. I was just trying to, uh, uh, I tried to make sure everything is, is like medically um, uh, correct. But, um, but this time, I think the, the existential uh, parts of, of his crisis was much more important, if that's an answer. Okay. Uh, still have quite a few hands. Um, yeah, over there. Yeah, well, thank you. It seems like it worked for you. Um, that, that makes me relieved. <laughs> no, thanks. Um, that's the fun of making movies. Exactly what you asked me. I think that's what's fun. I, I uh, made, made films on Super 8 since before I could write. And now you know I don't really write that well, so that's not much to brag about. But I, uh, no, I, I love to, I've, my whole life, I made animations, claymation when I was a kid, and you know, all kinds of film things upside down to create an effect, and I love that stuff. And I think there's, a, there's an old Hitchcock saying that if the audience is prepared and want to go with you to where you go, then they'll go anywhere with you. So I think to use that in a more naturalistic drama, which this is occasionally, I guess, you know, it's a strange blend of many things, I think. But um, yeah, you, you, yeah, that's that's the fun. That's the risk. That's what's exciting when I'm editing. Will we? I mean, it's like in musicals. There, there are some ways of suddenly having people break into song and dance and then go back to 
more naturalist acting and stuff like that. that. Those transitions are fun. That's the art of making movies, is to bring people along. And I think music plays into it. Uh, great, great actors, of course, that can, can convey a truth when Renat is running around and a truthful joy that you respond to. Had it felt stiff and constructed, it wouldn't have worked, I think. So it's, it's, a, it's a question of style and form as well, and also a performance. Do you want to say something about it? Because how did you approach differently doing a, a drama scene than doing the shrooms or the running around? Was it the same or was it different? Yeah, I guess it was uh, the same, like trying, uh, finding, um, uh, yeah, the feeling, the true, like the honest uh, way in of either going into the drama or the fun and the joy, I guess. Yeah, same, same, but different. That's why I wrote the film with Renat in mind, by the way, it's that dynamic. You, you can really break into laughter in the middle of something very serious and, and, and drag people with you. And that's a big, big, big talent. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, uh, we will take one final question. Uh, yeah, towards the back, yes. Yep. Um, I was, no point, what? Well, <laughs> it's, um, it's, yeah, um, there. No? Did you not have your hand up? Am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I'm not sure I heard all of that either, um, but I, I, def I heard, um, I think the question was about the scene where you're, uh, your character's in the gym and you see the TV interview, right? So what, what that moment symbolized in, 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 the, in the structure of their relationship or something? Was, was, did I hear you correctly? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a DJ. I can't hear anything on my left ear. I can only use my right. So, okay. Um, yeah. So, that, so, so was that question for Renata or for me? Or, or all of us, really? Yeah, yeah. What, what does that mean? It's a good question. Like, what, what, we, we're keeping it slightly mysterious exactly as to what Julie's response is when she's at the gym and looks at it. It's clear that it, she's takes it in and she looks at the screen as if she's not really feeling that it went so well for Axel, as if she cares for him, but you know. I, I, the whole clue of that scene to me is to try to create something where people can hopefully discuss it afterwards and feel that the people in that debate both had some good points and maybe both had a little bit of wrong as well. It's a complicated conversation that we're having in our culture and it's a necessary one. And I sympathize with both of them a lot. And I think in a way, I, I think it's interesting that Julie perceives it. And at that stage, you have to, as an audience, kind of go with it. But she, she, you, hopefully you, you accept in the film that you don't get all the answers about what she feels at all the moments, because that's the space that you fill as an audience that we need to sustain to not make, uh, in lack of a better term, a totalitarian movie where we're giving you all the answers. But do you want to say something about it? Like, I think your answer was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right. Well, I hope that answered it. I couldn't hear everything because of the mask, but thanks for the question. I like no totalitarian movies. We should, we should. Your next series can be that. Um, but but let, just on a note to that, the film that's screening this week that my grandfather directed, yeah. Remonstrance, it, that, it's about that. It's got five reels. And it, they could be, he made it so that they can be shown in any order and still make sense as a story. 
and he wanted the audience to kind of get involved in the film and, and rip it apart and put it back together and be active as viewers. That was his point. And the film is about the Cold War. Uh, it's made in 1971 and being Norway, which were a big part of NATO, but were bordering to Russia, at that time, the Soviet Union, and the ambivalence of that position in Europe. So anyway, just a little plugging on my granddad there. But his whole point was that narratives in media at the time in the late 60s had already started becoming totalitarian in the sense that it was perfect narrative and there was no space for human beings in the democracy to interpret. It was too kind of filled in the blanks. So that, that film was kind of resisting that. Yeah, it's a rare opportunity to show that, uh, to see that film. I will also say it's rare to um, get the opportunity to see Reprise and Oslo on 35 millimeter, which you can do tomorrow and Sunday. Um, and with um, both uh, Anders and Joachim here and Renata and Joachim will be back for opening weekend next week if you want to see the film again or to tell people. So thank you all and thank you all for the time. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you.